0: The following audio is from Grace Fellowship of Westerville. More information about the church is available at www.gracefcwesterville.org. Well, the resurrection of Lazarus is over. It took place last week, we enjoyed seeing a tremendously uplifting message. So now what would the response of the people be? Would would they respond in faith? Would they accept Jesus? Would they walk with Jesus? Or would they deny Jesus and hate him? And what we're going to see, unfortunately, is that both were true, not just the one. And I want to bring us to John chapter 11, and we pick up the story in verse 45 through 53. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we going to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all there were those that we saw, first of all, who came with Mary, they saw, and they believed. It was very much like the Samaritan story with the Samaritan woman, when Jesus wonderfully saved her, and she ran back to Samaria, and she said, You've got to come see this man. He knows everything I did. And they listened to her testimony, and then they went running to see Jesus for themselves. And after seeing him themselves, they said in John 4, verse 42... They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. They came, they saw, they believed. And it's interesting that as they saw for themselves, it reminds you and I that when we accept Christ as Savior, the radical change in our life is one that people look at us and see for themselves, that we're different that we've been changed. And so our testimony walking in this world is to be like these people, to see, to herald the message of Christ, that they can see Christ in us and see for themselves. Now, verse 46 says, because no sooner had they said this than we hear from the other side. Verse 46, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So let's just take a few minutes now and look at the evil hearts that were just as relevant here as as those who believed. How could they witness such a miracle? How could they stand there and see a man come out of the grave who'd been there for four days? And yet as he comes out, they run and tell on him and run to the Pharisees and tell how could they be so hateful and at the same time so impervious? And you know, as I, as I went through this, it reminded me that people going to tell the people they follow of something like this has happened already. If you recall in the beginning of John, there was a situation where John the Baptist's followers came to him and they said, paraphrasing, John, you've got to do something, man. These people are not following you. They're all following Jesus. And you remember the famous words uttered by John the Baptist in John chapter 3, verse 30? He said, oh, no, 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 no. He must increase and I must decrease. You see, John had come into this world, and the purpose of John was to point men and women to the coming Messiah. And when Jesus stepped into those waters and was baptized by John, he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, guys, follow him. He must increase and I must decrease. Now, the reality is that the Pharisees were here for the same reason. The Pharisees, through the law, were to teach people, through the law, of the coming Messiah. They were to help them keep the law and be the kind of people they should be looking for the coming of their Savior. Their Savior came. Their response was, he must decrease. I must increase. We've got to do something about this guy. I mean, if he has his way, we're going to lose everything. Two similar situations, but two totally opposite reactions. John the Baptist giving it to God and the Pharisees struggling to hang on to it. It's an amazing thing that takes place here. So it seems that the people reported to the Pharisees, who in turn informed the Sadducees, who then called a meeting of the Sanhedrin, which was the supreme governing body of everyone, to try to decide what they were going to do. So here were the best men of the nation, or at least in their mind. And there were the Pharisees, presumably the most holy men of the nations all decked out in their gowns and their flacteries. They may have even opened the meeting in prayer. But what were they meeting for? They were meeting to oppose a sinless man who came to offer salvation. So you you had these Pharisees who were not a political party at all, though they were political because of the power and the respect they had. But they were concerned about keeping the law in its minutest details and making sure everyone else did. On the other hand, you have the Sadducees. These were not religious men. These were the politicians. They, they were the wealthy aristocrats. And they collaborated with the Romans to preserve their position and control. And, and these men had much to lose, especially if there was a civil disorder, because they knew civil disorder would bring the Romans down upon them. So whenever there was a question between civil order or justice, they would always side with the Romans because all they cared about was keeping things the way they were. The interesting thing is that these two groups were enemies. They were rivals. They did not like each other at all. Yet when it came to Jesus, they united in the common cause. The Pharisees hated Jesus for his religious views. He exposed their sins. The Sadducees opposed him because he was a threat to their privileged position. Later, we find the same thing happening with Herod and Pilate, who were complete enemies of each other. In Luke chapter 23, verses 11 through 12, we read, And Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent them back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this they had been at enmity with each other. Two men hated each other, are now buddies in their unified hatred of Jesus. This starts to give us some insight into the heart of these men. People would rather unite with their enemies than follow Jesus. You know, Winston Churchill once said that if Hitler invaded hell, he was sure that he would be able to find something good to say about Satan in the House of Commons. Today, we see opposing factions coming together to put down Christianity. We see it all over the world. We're starting to see it more and more in this country. People do not want to surrender to Jesus Christ. They look for any way they can to oppose him. So they've all come together now, and they're going to have this council. So let's look at this evil deliberation. They begin with, what are we going to do? What a way to start their meeting. Here is this man performing miracles. If we let him go, people are going to believe. They're not going to follow us. We're going to lose our following, our standing. Notice verse 47 and 48. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place in our nation. But but wait a minute. He just raised a dead man. Think about that. We're not talking about dumb people here. We're talking about the smart people. We're talking about the educated people. We're talking about the people who know the law inside and out. We're talking about wealthy people. So these aren't ignorant people. These are the most educated people there is. And they're plotting to do away with them. The most striking thing about this discussion is that it unintentionally confesses that Christ's strength versus their weakness is no match. it's, It's striking on several levels. First of all, there's no attempt to deny the miracles. I mean, think about that. They know this man was raised from the dead. They know he's given blind men sight. They know he's, he has healed the lame. They know he has fed 5,000. They know he turned water to wine. They know all the miracles and the hundreds more that aren't even recorded here. These are smart people. But they don't deny the miracle. Then there was an earlier account where they admitted they didn't even know what he was doing. In fact, in John chapter seven, verse 51, it says, "Does our judge do we judge a man without first giving him hearing and learning what he does?" But now, they know exactly what he does, and they still deny him. They owned the genuineness of the miracles, yet their consciences were not moved. In short, they admitted to the miracles, but they opposed the miracle worker. They also admitted that they had been powerless over the considerable period of time because this is, in effect, their question when they said, what are we going to do? They are totally and completely powerless, and they know it, and they're scared. How does somebody see all the evidence and yet deny it? I mean, we're 2,000 years later. The Holy Spirit works in our heart and gives us understanding. These men were there as it happened and they didn't believe. What goes on in that kind of heart? They, uh, they were acknowledging that their efforts to stop him were completely futile. So if we translate their true meaning, they were asking Look how Jesus is growing in popularity. What are we going to do about it because we're losing our grip? Now, the fact that the Pharisees and the Sadducees collaborated against their their natural instinct to do away with Jesus reveals the real true nature of sin in the heart of man. Sin had formed them and hardened them. Therefore, no matter what Jesus did, they were determined to hate him. They didn't even stop to consider what the miracles meant, that he was God. They knew the law. They knew a Messiah was coming. The Messiah is here, and they're denying him. They're denying his power and what he's doing in their lives. Now, let me just pause here for a second just just to give a warning to Christians. Because for you and I who have accepted Christ as savior, it's easy to uh, to look at this and go, "Wow, man. They're they're just whew, That's terrible." But can I ask you a very personal question? How many of you deny the power of Christ in your life? How many of you when faced with trials and difficult situations find yourself just struggling to hang on to your life and what you want. You're not willing to give up to what the Lord may want to do in your life. You don't know how to handle situations. You don't know what to do. Knowing that God fully loves you and fully intends to work in your lives and to fill you with His Spirit, it's hard to give up, to die to self. That He must increase and I must decrease. You can read John the Baptist saying it, but boy, when it starts to come home, it's a whole new ballgame, isn't it? So as you look at this story, you need to just, just be mindful of what it really means in your life. You may have accepted him as Savior and you got one foot in heaven, but you got the other foot on your own will. And God is going to work until you see it his way. So we see this today, don't we? People who will deny the truth of the gospel and give any excuse they can not to buy into it. So bursting onto the scene now is good old self serving Caiaphas. One of, one of them, named Caiaphas, stood up and counseled in a very self serving way. He said, We must think of the good of the people. Great politician. Very good politician. But notice verses 49 to 50. Notice what he says here. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was a high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Notice how he dismissed every comment up to that point. He's probably been sitting there listening and listening to the panic, listening to all these comments, and he finally stops and he goes, you know nothing. Don't you know it's better for one man to die, though innocent, than for everybody to die? And he begins to prophesy in such a way that they start to see his side of it. Now, I find this fascinating that the most ruthless of them all would be the one to prophesy about Jesus' death. The others were panicked. The others were afraid. They were just talking and throwing things out. But Caiaphas was not confused. There were confused people, but not Caiaphas. Forget the miracle. He must die. Caiaphas expressed it in terms of the good of the people, as most politicians were. He said, look, we've got to think of everybody. Let's get rid of this guy so everybody will be good. The amazing thing, however, is that Caiaphas unwittingly foretold not only that Jesus would die, but also he would die the scope of his death and the atonement for all, all, all men. So even the evil ones are in the hands of God. Don't ever mistake that. When you read the news and you see all the evil in the world, understand that every one of them is in the hands of God. He controls everyone. And he's controlled everyone from, from the Garden of Eden until today. And here this most evil man thinks he's got a great idea and he's prophesying the words of God so here's what he said Jesus died not just to make salvation possible but to make it certain he died not just to make salvation possible but to make it certain nowhere in scripture is there a more emphatic and explicit statement concerning the objects for which the atonement was made and it came from God's enemy I'm here to tell you folks, you might as well give up now. He is in control. And so Caiaphas is his spokesman sharing these words and putting it out there. Now, Caiaphas had had an effect on these people. Verse 53 says, so from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Everything is in the hands of God. Everything is moving forward to his sacrificial death on Calvary. But Caiaphas laid it out so well that they all jumped on board. And from this point forward, the plans are put in place to take his life. Further, his arguments also won before Pilate. Notice in John chapter 19, verses 12 through 13. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you're not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at the place called the stone pavement and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. You see, Pilate perceived a riot coming, and he knew that he would be accountable before Caesar. So for him, it would definitely be better for one man to die, because his neck would be in the noose. Now, I love the irony of this whole thing. Because as this story moves through, it's very fascinating what happens here. Caiaphas had said it was better to kill Jesus than the entire nation perish. But that's exactly what's going to happen. The very events that they came uh, to dread came to pass. True, they eliminated Jesus in one sense. But in the aftermath of the crucifixion and the gradual scattering of the Christians from Jerusalem, the revolutionary spirit begins to grow with intensity in Palestine and war breaks out and the Romans invade and they crush all the strongholds of Jerusalem, including the temple. How different would it have been if these men had just accepted Christ as the Messiah? But they did not. They resisted him And the sin of the resistance had consequences. The very steps they took to save the nation were the very steps that destroyed the nation. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, are we resisting him? Are we resisting him in any aspect of our life? Is he the king of your life? Is his spirit living through you in the power of God? Or do you find yourself resisting and holding back to those very things that are in the way? Now, since the destruction of Jerusalem took place in about A.D. 70, and since John is writing this gospel about A.D. 90, according to best emphasis or best estimates, no one who read the gospel in John's time would have missed the irony. The Sanhedrin had acted as they did in order to put down Jesus. They said, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. But what happened? Men believed in him, and they took the gospel throughout the world. Verse 52 says, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad the very thing they took, took great pains to stamp out spread unbelievably in the power of the Spirit. And men went all over the world preaching the gospel. Now, you cannot frustrate God. You can oppose him, but you will only pay the consequences as these men did. Proverbs 19, verse 21 says, Many are the plans in the mind of man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. So you might as well give up. You might as well give in to him now. His plans will not be forwarded. Now, as we look at this whole thing and we allow it to digest in our minds and we allow it to just filter in, You're going to be confronted with one of three choices. There are three choices that can be made in light of the gospel. Number one, you can try to ignore him. Many try this. In fact, sad to say, many Christians do this. They accept him as Savior, but they ignore him in their daily lives. If this is your choice, you're not going to get very far. Why? Because he does too many miracles. He did too many miracles back then. He does miracles today. What are you going to do when your wife accepts him or your husband or your child? What are you going to do when your friends accept him and you see their lives change? How will you ignore him on that day when we are told by Philippians 2, verses 10 and 11, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Everyone in this room will bow the knee. And you will either bow it in obedience and praise or in ruin at the great white throne. Everybody will bow the knee. Unfortunately for some, it'll be too late. So you can try to ignore him. The second thing you can do is you can oppose him. Many have taken this course. Caiaphas may have been the first, but he certainly wasn't the last. In fact, Rome, not long after Caiaphas, Rome got into the act, uh, Nero tortured Christians and even used them as human torches in his garden. Can you oppose him? If you do, do you really think you can succeed? If you do, I can assure you that you will find yourself in the company of those recognized in Psalm chapter 2, verses 2 through 4. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. (laughs) But he who sits in the heavens... Lord holds them in derision. You will be an object of holy ridicule. No man can stand before God and try to stop his purpose. The third choice, and the one that I hope we all make, you can believe and follow him with your life. You say, follow him he went to the cross what's so desirable about that true it is true his way is the way of the cross but the cross is the only way to victory because it's only by losing your life that you can gain it it's only by dying to yourself and allowing the spirit to live through you that life becomes real When you choose to follow Christ and abandon everything to Him, He will lead you in His glory. He will guide you into all truth through the power of the Holy Spirit, and He will lead you every step of the way. I wish you could have been with us yesterday morning at our men's prayer breakfast. We had 22 guys crammed into a small room, and you should have heard the heart of these men. Because they were testifying of what Christ was doing in them. They were testifying about how good God is. We heard from Kifa, who's, who's from Kenya, talking what God is doing over there. We heard men here in our own church talking about what God is doing in their lives. Friends, when you surrender to Christ, you get Christ. And when Christ is in control, you get his will. can I just make it as blunt as I can? When you surrender to Christ, you will never, ever lose. I'll go so far to say it's impossible to lose. It's not a life of ease, comfort, and pleasure. We live in a sin-sick world. Bad things happen to good people. That's not what this is about. If you think for one minute that Christianity is about getting all your answers and solving your problems, then just look at John the Baptist. We talked about him a number of weeks ago, but here was a man. (laughs) He gave his life to Jesus Christ. He said in John 3, verse 30, he must increase, I must decrease. And now he finds himself in prison, by the way, for obeying Christ. And if you recall what I mentioned, he, he starts to waver a little bit. And he sends word to Jesus and he says, he goes, hey, are you the one? Because this is going badly for me. And Jesus responds by quoting Isaiah when he talks about what will happen when the Son of Man comes and the Messiah comes. And he goes, you tell John that the lame will walk and the blind will see. And the sick will be healed. And the prisoners will be free. Only he leaves that part off about the prisoners. And he says, basically, paraphrasing, yeah, I'm the one. And you're going to lose your head at the whim of a stripper. Hmm. I didn't see it working out that way. You know, live for Christ, get some benefits, have a good life. When was the last time you heard that preached from a pulpit? Trust God, it may turn out badly. Listen, it wasn't about him. It was about glorifying God. And if I have to die, take my life, if it brings glory to you. And every one of those disciples went through the worlds and died horrible deaths. Some boiled in oil, some crucified upside down, martyred every one of them for the cause of Christ. Christ. Christianity is not about comfort. It's about surrender. And when you and I can grasp the reality of that truth and give him our lives, you'll change the world. Because that's what he promised. These Pharisees couldn't get it. They couldn't grasp it. They couldn't get it into their heads. They couldn't give up control of their life. And it cost them their are you willing to give up control? Are you willing to say, God, not my will, yours? You take my life. I'll have opposition, yeah. People may make fun of me, okay. So I've got you for eternity. I'll live for you, whatever you call me to do. You're more important to my family. You're more important than my business. You're more important than my fun. Everything I have is yours, God do with it as you will. Let, let me leave you with a verse to ponder. 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 7 through 9. So the hour the, so the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe the stone that the builder rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumbled because they disobeyed the word and they were destined to do as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So the choice is simply this. What will you do with your life? Will you be a stumbling stone or a royal priesthood? You know the cool thing about all this? (laughs) Is that Jesus is here saying, take it. I'm offering it. It's yours. Will you accept the gift or will you stand stubborn and pay the consequences? The choice is there. Father, we just thank you again for your word and Lord, the severity of your word. We read about these Pharisees and we're prone to just go by and go, oh, they were losers. (laughs) But they were men who were very intelligent and they chose themselves and they wound up losing everything. Lord, I got to believe that in a group here this morning, There are people who are wrestling with this very thing. They want to trust you. They want to believe that you're there, but they just can't let go. I pray, Lord, that you would just perk it in their hearts to surrender. I pray, Lord, that you would help them to realize that everything in this world is wood, hay, and stubble, but only what comes through your word and your spirit is eternal. I don't know where everybody is here today, but God, you do. You know the hearts and the circumstances of every person. I pray, Lord, that you would move them to surrender and enjoy the unmatched glory of the surrendered life. To see what you can do in a life never gets tiring to know that you can guide us when things are dark, that you can lift us up by your spirit when we think all is lost and refocus us on Jesus Christ. Lord, do what you're going to do in the hearts of all of us. And I just pray with all my heart that there is no one here who will turn a calloused, cold shoulder to you. Move in us, I pray in Christ's blessed name. Amen. Guys, don't forget if you have a second to help.